Marshall here. Welcome to RE Something Interesting, the Realignment's new weekend show where I speak to someone about a topic that may be a little off the political and policy slash history train we focus on during the week, but could be fun to check into over the weekend. Today's episode is with the journalist Jason Del Rey. He wrote a book last June, Winner Sells All, Amazon, Walmart, and the Battle for Our Wallets. This episode actually comes as a suggestion from a listener on last week's Thanksgiving Supercast. They wanted to know what the deal with Black Friday was, how Cyber Monday has changed, and whether or not people are going to be in person in the same way they used to be when they came to their shopping back in the 2000s when I was back in K-12 and really remember waking up to go to Best Buy in person. Jason was immediately the person who I thought of because he's covered the commerce space for decades, but also has written a book that speaks to both the post-COVID and pre-COVID challenges that have affected the space, including, of course, the end of the zero interest rate phenomenon that fueled so many of the startups and the businesses in the space. Hope you all enjoyed this conversation. And once again, this was an episode that came to you by listener suggestion. So if there are any topics you're wondering about that don't have to do with the realignment's day to day, definitely write in at realignmentpod at gmo.com as last week's listener did. Jason Del Rey, welcome to RE Something Interesting. Thanks for having me. Yeah, it's great to chat for you, Jason. So number one, this episode came together very quickly. I got a bit of audience feedback slash questioning about the state of Black Friday, what kind of happened last weekend with the like e-commerce versus the in-person aspect. So I instantly thought back to a book you published back in June, took it in this week. So we have lots to talk about. Let's just kind of start here. What is your kind of personal reaction and take on the is Black Friday as an in-person experience over discourse, given the fact that you just wrote this book about the past <laughs> like decade or so of Amazon and Walmart, both struggling in their own ways to do the e-commerce and the in-person part? Yeah, I don't I don't think it's over. I just think it's a, I, I'm going to use an industry term and that's a retail industry term, which pains me, but like Black Friday and Cyber 5 is now an omni-channel experience, meaning like a lot, it's really important for a lot of companies to make sure that people can buy what they want, how they want it, and then either have it picked up, delivered, um, or, I mean, I guess those are two options. Either you pick it up at a store, you deliver it, or you have curbside, or you have an, in, you know. So I, I think it's I think it's evolved. Um, I definitely do agree that the in-store experience is not what it once was. I also think that sales have been, sales are really spread out more so than they ever were. You know, we see weeks in advance, um, you know, Cyber Monday sales on the Tuesday after Cyber Monday. And so I think that's partially the environment we're living in where consumers are really looking for deals, really, really deal hunting. I think Walmart on one of their earnings calls recently said, um, you know, that the sales in and around a, a deal, but not during the deal are super weak um, comparatively. And um, so we're, so it's part, part uh, the time, you know, the time we're living in with the economy and the economic fears, but also just the evolution of e-commerce and, and yes, I'll say it again, the omni-channel experience melding online and store experiences. Yeah. It's kind of funny. I guess the question that comes to mind then, is it just time that we 
probably delete the term e-commerce from the lexicon in the sense that like it's just commerce there's like you know those 1990s internet equivalent like, where the web and like the, yeah, we're just, yeah. just call it the internet i feel like we're probably so, in that equivalent yeah i think i think that's totally fair and and honestly when i got hired so i started covering retail and e-commerce um or commerce in general uh, 10 years ago uh then at a publication that was called all things digital it was sort of part of dow jones and it became recode uh and uh my title was senior editor of commerce and it wasn't you know e-commerce and i remember you know wondering about that back then and i don't know how thought out that was or not that but but totally it is just it is just commerce if you're a big mass retailer um you need to to I think have more than just a delivery experience and Amazon. We could talk about this. Amazon has really struggled uh, to figure out how physical retail should play a part in their company. Um, and but but you know again, a lot of parts of this country, not just on the coast, like how where people think they just get boxes. You know, boxes are the only way uh, to shop. Uh, a lot of a lot of parts of the country, it is easier and more convenient to stop by and pick something up at the curbside than to wait even one more day for that item. Yeah. So before we get into the Amazon or Walmart aspect, I'd love to ask you about how the idea of ZERP, so the zero interest rate phenomenon, applies to this category. Because as I'm listening to your book, you start off with an anecdote of, um, you know, a kind of not ambush interviewing, but just, you know, throwing a quick question to Jeff Bezos before a panel he was doing um, at a Recode conference. And you two are talking about like Trunk Club. This was this, and I think maybe Trunk Clubs do exist, but it's this service no. from, you yeah. know, the 2010s where they were going to have like a, you know, a subscription and you, they would send you clothes and it's a mix of like digital and like an actual human selector. And as I was just hearing this, I was like, man, that's such a 2010s thing. Just the <laughs> idea that we're going to get super pumped about this subscription description and they're going to send you these kind of like generic clothes that are arranged algorithmically. So I guess how has the end of ZERP and also the Bonobos conversation fits into this too. How yeah. has the end of ZERP impacted e-commerce? Because I think we probably experienced this in other categories of tech, but this one's like a little less top of mind for folks. Yeah. I mean, I spent many years and many late nights covering sort of the startup space in retail and in, in e-commerce. So you mentioned Trunk Club, uh, Bonobos, uh, Rent the Runway, which um, is still a public, is a public company now, but um, has has really struggled of late. Uh, and I think, I, I'm not going to paint them all with a broad brush, but um, the, the VC funding, you know, they were able to secure very easily uh, the debt, the cheap debt, uh, it led to really not sound businesses in many cases. And, you know, while Amazon for a variety of reasons can get away with, um, you know, next day shipping on a single, you know, tube of toothpaste yeah. for a little period of time. I mean, it's not sustainable for them either. Like the, these, these startup companies at a fraction of the scale, like that kind of, this kind of spending on, this magical consumer experience that really shouldn't be possible. You know, it, it was never going to last. And there were smart critics from the beginning just saying, like, eventually this VC money, the cheap debt is like, it's not going to be there. And they don't have sound businesses. And, and those critics have mostly proven out to be to be correct. 
Um, I'm not sure if that's exactly if that's no, no, it's true. But I, no, I think yeah. that, I think that gets to it because there was a lot of like exuberance and excitement. But I guess what I kind of wonder then to the critics is it seems like on paper then where things went with Trunk Club getting acquired, Bonobos getting acquired by Walmart is you'd have these startups, they get started with, you know, overvaluations and a little too much funding, but then they're taken by these bigger companies. They're wrapped in, but you know, Bonobos recently was just spun out of Walmart. So obviously something isn't working there. So what is going wrong post acquisition and the jet.com, this is the same story there as well. Um, So like what, what goes wrong with these startups when they're acquired? Yeah. So it, it seems kind of crazy to think that these big corporations wouldn't do great due diligence, but I think part of what happened was like, they get in there and they really look at the business in an even closer way, the, the economics of it. And, and, and they realize like, man, it, they really don't work. I think Bonobos at Walmart, you know, that, that was a weird bet that I kind of understood at the time because it was totally different consumer base than, than mm. what Walmart's going after. So they're trying to make the, the case at the time that they're trying to reach new consumers and also reach new up and coming, uh, uh, sort of take new up and coming brands and make sure they don't start selling on Amazon. Like that's really what the, sh- the strategy was. Um, but apparel, you know, these companies get VC funding, but they're really at their heart. A lot of them retail companies and retail companies don't grow at like VC um, expectation rate. So a re- like a, a clothing company just it's it doesn't make sense for them to grow a hundred percent year over year. Like that's not normal. A software company, yes. And so there were these kind of like weird expectations, especially when you built in subscription to some of them, that you would see sort of software company returns. And so that just that led into a hype cycle. Media was guilty of some of the you know some of you know believing this growth would last forever as well. And I think I think some of the big retailers just thought the growth would last forever. And these turned out to be, you know, okay retail companies, but spending like they were tech companies. So to pause you there for a second, uh, let me give you my most like 2014 aspirant VC associate (laughs) take. The take would just be, look, like it's the software eating the world era. Obviously, like retail as a category, if I open, you know, the Marshall Atelier in like downtown Austin, that's not going to experience SaaS company returns. But there's this thing called the internet, and there's this yeah. thing where the mall is dying. Um, we are seeing this idea from a normalization perspective that consumers are willing to risk buying that pair of Nikes, even if they're not going into the Nike town to like get the exact fitting of it. So if we introduce the internet to this category, we are going to may- maybe not produce a million you know, uh, SaaS company returns, but there's definitely going to be a couple of winners in the same way that like Uber is a winner or Airbnb is a winner. Like, it seems that that doesn't seem to be as insane a take. Um, if we <laughs> put our 2014 heads on versus what no, we saw. Yeah. And, and I think in some cases it was, these companies could give VC returns, um, but not, not having raised, uh, you know, 250 million, 200 million at a billion dollar valuation, maybe, you know, maybe raising, you know, 45 million at whatever, or 200 million mm-hmm. valuation. And there were some of them like dollar shave club. It, 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 it's still exists, but has not had, um, not had a, a great, I don't know what, basically since it's been acquired, the business has d- not done very well, but for the VCs who were the early VCs, I think it sold for a billion dollars. Like they, 
they made good money on that. You know, Trunk Club sold for, I forget the exact number, three something. Um, like the early VCs made good money on that. Um, but there was this feeling there were going to be many more of them. I think, I think frankly, you know, a lot of the growth of these companies came, you know, on paid online marketing. And uh, the cost of um, Google, Facebook marketing, and then, you know, there's been changes in recent year that Ab uh, Apple has led that has impacted advertising online, basically just got a lot more expensive and a lot more crowded. And, um, you know, I don't have to tell you what, what uh, Instagram ads look like in the way of, you know, a new brand every day selling you some, in my case, I've two kids and it's a lot of youth sports equipment that, um, you know, anyway, so I, I think there were a couple of different dynamics. I think it was the the level of investment that didn't make sense in a lot of cases. And then also just the the marketing spend profile totally changed over a course of, of you know, the second part of the 2010s. And uh, and that spelled trouble. It wasn't as as cheap to acquire new customers. You know, it's interesting. Uh, undercurrent of your running throughout your book is this um, kind of cultural theme of like where Walmart and Amazon like fit into American society. So like you know, if I'm thinking back to high school, like 2006, there's all these documentaries about like Walmart is this like. Southern, like conservative company that in many ways is destroying like small towns and Main Street. It's not something that's like top of mind, like growing up in like the Pacific Northwest. And quite obviously it's there, but it's not quite the same way. And Amazon at the same time is this very like much like tech focused company um, that is, is serving everyone to a certain degree. Um, to what degree, how, how would you basically define the where Amazon and Walmart fit in our culture today? in comparison to basically like the 2000s where a lot of the story kind of could kind of begin. Yeah, I think I think there's a to answer it one way. I, I think there's a, a lot more overlap today um, in customer base than there than there was. And I think I think culturally, Amazon is still um, I, I think there's still large pockets of of I'll, I'll call the the coasts um that would never admit they bought something at walmart or on walmart online but um i think the truth is there's a you know the internet and walmart's aggressive push uh into figuring out how to really gain some ground on the internet and at least not be frankly an embarrassment uh, on the you know as an e-commerce player for the size of the company i think has led to customer overlap i think culturally though um, I don't know. I, I Walmart doesn't doesn't uh, get talked about ar around the dinner table as much. It you know in Bergen County, New Jersey, where I am, uh, as your Alexa or your um, ridiculous Prime uh, Black Friday football game on on uh, <laughs> sponsored by Prime. Um, but but I but I but I think again I think. They are both really culturally relevant um, for their core in their core customer pockets, um, and I think those are still um, different in many ways. But we're just seeing more and more overlap, and I think that's what I think. Frankly, that's what Walmart wants. I think um, while they're proud of their roots, and um, you go down to their headquarters, and uh, feels nothing like uh, this is their 
current slash old headquarters. They're building a new one, but it feels like um, a company whose value is we're not going to spend any money on ourselves because the most important thing is our customers saving money. Um, You know, they're they what they want. They're they're, what they want in the future is, um, you know, I think they want to be considered a little more uh as culturally relevant as as amazon is and they've been pushing in that direction i think the thing that i'm always interested in a book like yours because it's almost kind of a philosophical question beyond just a business school case study question is why was the legacy incumbent unable to take advantage of an opportunity but a successor startup is they would take advantage of. So think of Walmart in the 1990s, Sam Walton um, has just passed away, but it's still just like this dominating feature of American retail. It's leaning into globalization. It's got all this, all mm-hmm. these headwinds. Yeah, it just completely messes up the internet opportunity, even though Amazon's spending way more time like in books than they're spending on like the type of retail that eventually they're competing with Walmart in. What's like the kind of quick and dirty of like maybe cultural or even just business level, what goes wrong there? Yeah, I think, I mean, this is kind of a boring answer, but I think it really is an innovator's dilemma that spending in e-commerce at the time, uh, it it was expensive to make e-commerce work. It still is today. Um, Shipping is not free as Prime makes you think. Um, And the store leaders who were the most powerful leaders were scared about, um, you know, cannibalization essentially sending sales to this new channel that was much less profitable and walmart you know guaranteed wall street profits and that's what they went you know that that is what most companies you know are focused on right we've been sort of tricked in the last decade or two with some tech companies that profits don't matter but um but so so that's sort of the quick and dirty i will say quickly um there were smart people inside Walmart, as I, you know, found in reporting this book and start the book out, um, talking about some of them who were working on e-commerce in a sort of real way in the mid 1990s. They wanted a little more of a commitment from Walmart's then CEO. He saw it as I, I don't blame him necessarily. He saw it at the, as this fun little experiment, um, but something that would never be as big as uh, it is today. And so he was he was not going to sort of give real commitment, real investment. Um, so I think I think it, innovators dilemma of of a new channel that's going to cannibalize sales, um, cannibalize profits. And, you know, this company was was built on low cost prices and profits for, you know, reinvesting profits. And so um, I, I think that's sort of the quick and dirty. I like your theme of kind of we as consumers have gotten used to a certain status quo where it's not actually sustainable. So looking and we, we see this in a couple of different directions when it comes to COVID. Um, so that you have the supply chain crunch. So like your Wayfair couch, it's way too cheap, is literally not going to come in three yeah. months. That was my personal um, experience <laughs> in Brooklyn at the time. Um, but and then on the you know Amazon or the Walmart side of things, there's obviously going to also be the like shipping and the speed that you can actually get things done when you actually place an order online. What does the kind of like the, to to use my version of the cliche, what does the new normal look like post COVID in the in-person and online categories? Yeah. Something I've been interested in following is just one facet is, is retailers that are starting to pull back on free returns. And, um, Oh, this is fascinating. This is such a, you say it out loud and you're like, wait, it's crazy that that's how things work, but go on. 
Yeah, I mean, I, I live in a household. I'm going to, you know, I live in a household where um, my spouse, she um, she takes full advantage of free returns. And it's like, I get it. Like the internet has created this thing where we can, you know, infinite selection. And so I don't know what the right fit is on this, uh, you know, shirt or whether this color or that color will look better in our living room. And, um, and so it's just, you know, when, when I look at the, the pile of returns in my living room, it is just a reminder, like, it really can't work this way for most businesses. Now, for retailers, um, you know, physical retailers uh, who have stores and they're mass retailers, so they have stores everywhere. Like, yeah, a return in shop, like it's still not great to get a return. Like that has to be, we gotta, we gotta identify whether we could sell that again and restocking, but, but it's okay. But, but I think the new, I think part of the new normal is, you know, a lot more places are going to charge for returns or the return windows are going to be shorter. Um, but, you know, you have Amazon and Walmart kind of continuing to push with, you know, creating this this idea that that returns are free. And so, you know, it will be tough for competition. That said, Amazon even has experimented in some places with having UPS returns um, cost something. You know, they they have this partnership with UPS where returns are are quote free um that's what we use in this household um but they over the last year there's been some pockets of of the u.s where they've where they've um experimented which were charging a small fee so i i think honestly they're all trying to figure it out um what amazon and walmart have to kind of subsidize this is these growing advertising businesses which we can or you know we can maybe talk about or not but um you know reading really leaning into um, making more and more of their web experience sponsored and thus creating extra profit for them that they can reinvest into, um, you know, things like free returns or uh, hopefully uh, lower prices in some cases. Yeah, it's just funny. You got me thinking back to my own like personal history. I worked retail um, in the 2010s and I think processing returns um, especially in the 2010s was just so annoying that I developed like this disdain for the incompetent people. Like you couldn't try it on. You didn't know your size. So I personally, like, this is not scalable. I just personally have, like, I will keep things that I should not keep. Um, so it's kind of funny. If you oh. react, react things differently. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, personal experience is profound. I mean, we're still, we're still tipping. Uh, I still get a uh, side eye for my wife. If I tip less than like, I don't know, 25% for a bad server because she was a, she was a server for a long, for a long time. So uh, anyway, no, but yeah, I, I think, listen, I think, I think some of this stuff's not sustainable. I think you see companies even, you know, one of, one of the funniest um, changes that reminded me of the 1990 e-commerce experience or early 2000s was there's a site called fanatics that um, sells licensed sports apparel, uh, fascinating in a lot of ways because of their relationships with all the sports leagues um and they they sort of dominate this space now they're charging a um not just a shipping fee but a handling fee you know the whole old phrase shipping and handling oh, i like, forgot about that you're right there's there's a lot about a phrase. that well fanatics brought it back sometime during the pandemic and as of my last purchase, which was a couple of months ago, there was still like a $2 handling fee. And, and, you know, I I've tweeted about this, 
you know, somewhat critically of the company. But you know what? It's probably more realistic that they're charging that than than everyone else who doesn't. Like it costs like just because there's not a store, like there are people working in warehouses um, anyway. So, uh, you know, it, it is this transitional period, I think, for e-commerce. And I wonder how much there may be more types of pullback um, to this, you know, these free um, what we thought were table stakes for the consumer experience. Some of that may may retrench a bit. Um, but one area I've just seen so far is with, with some of these free returns going away. Speaking of fanatics, I'm just kind of curious about this. I think this goes to the challenge facing Amazon and Walmart, right? So college sports, teams, et cetera, like those are the definitions of niches. Um, like is the reality that we're coming to that Amazon and Walmart can just get all the big commodity products there where you're going to order like your Pepsi. And just at the end of the day, like it turns out the bonobos at a better valuation and a better sort of funding system just can have its own website and doesn't need to be on Amazon.com. I was kind of trying to think of how does this sort of like eco, because there's just a world where you you could imagine if it's, let's say the peak of exuberance in the you know early 2010s, like, oh yeah, Amazon is just going to have like a sports section and they're yeah. going to partner with the NFL and they're going to partner with the NCAA. And because they figured out shipping, they're just going to arrange all of that. Like this, this is like consumers are going to tailor their e-commerce experience to fit their needs. Maybe like your, you know, your teams pop up on your Amazon prime page, my teams pop up. Why didn't that happen? Why do niches like the one that Fanatics um, covers still exist? Yeah, I, Listen, I think they're, I think they're still working on it. I, I don't, I don't know. I, I think both of those companies are as likely today um, than they were, I don't know, five years ago to still um, eat up some of this stuff. I think I'm, a big reason why Amazon's in Prime Video so heavily um, is because how valuable sports is. Yes, to um, you know the live. Ex it's one of the few things that we will you know, consume in, in a live way. Um, but also because of, you know, the growing value of these sports brands and teams around the world. And so they've done deals overseas, um, for that include merchandise, um, in a big way, some soccer deals I'm forgetting. I'm now forgetting exactly <laughs> where I want to say there's a deal in France. Um, so, but, you know, I, I see your point. I, I just think that, you know, there's in in the pet category, there's an independent company, Chewy, right? There's mm -hmm. fanatics in sports apparel. Um, I I think those those companies, there's different reasons why they have existed and succeeded in many ways. Um, but I, I still think the two giants are are still trying to gobble up whatever they can and um, and are still positioned pretty well to to still do that now. Um, if you had, if you talk to the head of a company like Shopify, which is all about powering small and mid-sized brands and their websites, they might have a, a different take. Um, but it's it's still really hard to exist at any sort of scale as an independent uh, online retailer in the U.S. right now. Something I don't understand. I do understand because I read the book, but I think a lot of listeners aren't going to understand is sure. why are we even talking about advertising or sustainability or what you could actually afford when these are two of like the biggest corporations in the world like i would under, i think people would understand if we're talking if you wrote a different book which would have been yep. 
Warby Parker versus Bonobos versus these other D2C companies that are like one bad funding around from collapse, like them saying, no, 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 seriously, like we cannot afford this, but this is Amazon. The whole strategy in the nineties and two thousands is we're just going to like spend all this money and eventually just sort of dominate. Like why does it seem like Amazon and Walmart, and you see this with Amazon's like in-person store experience, why do they have to get so much more short to medium term focused when they're printing so much money in their other dominating categories? Yeah, that's um, that, that's that's a very good question. So I think on the Amazon side, um, listen, I think they they made some really big bet. They, they were printing money, the printing money in AWS for sure. But in the history of the company, like them printing money in AWS is a pretty recent phenomenon. If you look mm -hmm. back at the 30 year, 30 year history of the company, it's been sort of like the last decade. And then there's been more competition in cloud computing. So they're not dominating that space. I forget what their market share is today in that space, 30s or 40s. Um, but there is some good competition there. Um, the advertising business, it is now a $40 billion a year uh, business in terms of revenue. That is huge. Um, but again, that's, that's sort of the last few years. I think, I think part of the reason they're still, we're, we're talking about this is, um, labor costs have, have increased. I think shipping costs, you know, supply chain struggles, challenges have have increased. Um, and then the pandemic, you know, Amazon specifically, they were, they built out, they leased all this warehouse space they didn't need because they, like many others thought. The growth we were seeing during the pandemic in e-commerce, um, yeah, maybe it'd level off a little, but would still continue at sort of this crazy rapid clip. And they, you know, they say they would do it again because they were leaning into what the customer they thought the customer wanted, but they they made sort of drastically bad bets on spending in terms of uh, warehouse space, and so that has that has a years long impact on a company like Amazon, even even with success in other areas. And then the last thing I'll say is, um, I don't know how much they've spent on Alexa since it was created, but it was a Jeff Bezos, it was really his baby. And um, no matter what they say publicly about Alexa's success or, you know, to date, it is, it is everywhere in many ways, but it is not used how they thought it would be used. It is not increased, you know, sales like they thought it would. Um, it is not necessarily the next iPhone um, in the way in 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 revenue generation for them, and they were basically selling them, you know, at cost, if not for a loss in some cases when on sale. And so I think, you know, tens of billions of dollars on warehouse space and bad Alexa bets, like that, adds up even for a company like Amazon. Man, that's so interesting because I love your comparison of the Alexa device to the iPhone. Because if we're thinking in just, you know, traditional SV terms, like there's the personal computer and then you have like the mobile era, you know, and the, the, the software and apps and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. You then have the cloud. Yeah. I think the way that you could have seen those venture scale returns in this D2C like online e-commerce category would have been if you'd had 
this transformative X factor on the level of the iPhone for the category. Um, and the fact that that doesn't seem to have emerged, but and I guess here's the question, are the limits of the lack of a iPhone equivalent about a lack of tech capability or is it just consumer preference? Because look, I got three Alexa devices at Christmas parties um, yeah. back when that was like a hot, cool thing. They're all sitting in a drawer because I just don't enjoy voice. They could make the tech as great as possible. It wasn't that the Alexa couldn't understand me. It wasn't that it wasn't responsive. I just don't care for it. I actually enjoy using like my phone or a laptop, which was the actual, what's the gap there? Listen, I think there was a bet by Amazon and some others that, um, that whether you want to call it like ambient computing or, or voice computing, um, basically the idea in your home that you're just going to speak and things are going to just happen or come to you or be delivered like it, it it's it, it's reality in in some ways but it just did not consumer preference has just shown that people the phone is still pretty damn convenient right mm -hmm. and so i think you know amazon was making this bet I, I think they were blown away by the early success of alexa um and then i think they saw they were the big tech company um that didn't have a, uh, you know, OS didn't have a, a phone and didn't have, you know, didn't have Android or didn't have iOS and an iPhone. And I think they were scared about um, a future and what that would mean for them. And so this, they just leaned in heavily once they saw the early success, but I think it, I think it was, you know, voice computing is fads too strong of a word. Like it's people use it all the time for di in different ways, but um for the retail experience and Walmart was betting on a partnership with Google way back um, that you would order, order your groceries. I think there's smaller ways, you know, you talk, maybe you, you tell Alexa what, you know, something you need next time you go to the grocery store. Um, but it just, there's too much friction there to make it a real shopping experience. And um, your, but your bigger question I think was, why haven't we seen sort of the iPhone equivalent in, I think you were saying in, in the retail space, is that? Yeah. Retail e-commerce space. Yeah. I mean, uh, I think no matter how much sort of digital takes over, I think there's an entertainment value factor in shopping where people want to, um, be out and touching and feeling whether it's groceries or apparel and um, yeah, Amazon's trying to bring technology into physical retail by, you know, skipping the checkout. And for a small portion of, of consumers, that'll be enough to choose them. But I think, I, I think retail is just inherently experiential. And um, maybe someday we'll, the goggles we put on our face will give us that same feel and that'll be enough. But until then, um, I, I think, I think it's just more of a, you know, it's it's just something that digital can help enable, but um, is not going to take over completely. So for these last three or so questions, so we'll go one at a time. Number one, where would you say we've ended up on like the big narrative around e-commerce after the pandemic? Because as you know, and like a bunch of other categories, it's like, oh, like we're locked down, gyms are closed. So this is this huge opportunity for Peloton and at-home fitness. Mirror yeah. gets acquired by Lululemon. Do you see, do you see is, the, oh, I don't know if you could, you see that bike behind me, right? It yeah. doesn't have, it doesn't have clothes on it, but I'm also not on it uh, quite enough either. Mine is, mine is, mine is uh, below us uh, in terms of uh, yeah. my, my house. And it also uh, has clothes on it. Um, so 
we've seemed to have like reverted just the fact that like people are no not we i think peloton's a great company um it's just like the gym is good. I like going to the gym. It's 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 actually, I, especially because I work from home. Uh, I feel I don't want to be trapped um, yeah. in my house doing at home fitness. Like going to the gym is actually a fun like midday like activity for me. But basically, that's a category we've seen us sort of like rebalance a little closer to the norm. Movie theaters are in a weird category as well too. Where have we settled after two years or so of like post pandemic um, changes, changes, etc. Yeah. I, so listen, I, I think there are absolutely people who um, did not shop m- much online and definitely didn't shop online for certain categories, let's say groceries, that got hooked on the convenience, whether not just maybe not because they are 25 years old and have, you know, a, a tech job and, and have all this disposable income, but because they're 75 years old and listen, they might not have a lot of money, but like the convenience to not have to get up and either take a bus to the grocery store or drive themselves, you know, I know plenty of these people. So I think, I think it definitely converted new people. I just think, um, and and there was some, there is more growth. There's slightly more growth in e-commerce overall in the U S than there would have been uh, without the pandemic. But I think the balance there's going to be a balance of digital and physical retail and certain categories you're going to want to be in a store. I mean, I've honestly, it's partly because I have kids who like the mall experience, uh, but I've been, I've been in a mall more, I don't know, in the last year or two than um, I have, you know, maybe the decade before that. And that's partially, you know, malls are trying to figure out experience experiences, right? Really geared toward a lot of them geared toward kids. So that, so I'm, I'm right in that target market. Um, so I think where we are is e-commerce is going to continue to grow as a percentage of retail. Um, there were new people converted to new types of e-commerce offerings, but, uh, there's going to be this blend of physical retail and e-commerce for a long time and mediocre physical retail will die. That's why some big department stores are going away there. There's nothing great about them. Sears the doesn't is, serve a function in the day. Yeah, the price, price isn't great. The selection isn't great. The quality isn't great, but I think, I think, you know, there'll be fewer stores in the future, but um, that world, maybe some people thought maybe I was one of them at some point that, you know, there'd be uh, 90% fewer stores like in 2025, like that, that's far from reality. I'm glad you, I was actually going to ask you about the mall as we end here, just because uh, I've started, I need to do an episode just like on the mall narrative itself. Cause it's self, cause I, I've actually started going to the mall. I think it's cause I'm in my thirties. So like it serves a different function um, than it would have. Um, but I love, I love these outdoor malls. So like there's this place called the domain, like in the like Austin exurbs. Mm-hmm. Um, and to your point, the stores are a little different. So the short, the stores are much more showroomy yeah. and they would purely be just like a, a receptacle of everything you could possibly buy. Part of the implication is like, maybe you're going to get something here, but like, we're also kind of pitching you 
on uh, things you're going to do when you get back home, like the sales are the same. Um, you know, it's sort of, there's a Bonobos store there, but like a lot of the more traditional retail stores are much closer to the way Bonobos looked than it was the other way around um, in the 2010s. And then obviously to the point there, it's like outdoors, there's like a, you know, a jungle gym, like the, the restaurant, there's not a food court, right? So you're not like getting Orange Julius, like you're sitting down at like a generic, like, you know, American Mexican restaurant. So I think that stuff is um, always cool. So I guess for the, for the last question here, um who who ended up who ended up winning right winning isn't quite the right because once again it's amazon and it's walmart and it's not quite a literal competition because the demographics are a little different um there is such things in ever expanding pie sometimes in some categories but in terms of like the narrative who would you say is feeling pretty confident about themselves going into this holiday season and next year and who thinks like wow we took some dead ends that sort of held us back a bit. I think Walmart's feeling very good about where they are actually today. I think they um, they were forced. So the thing that Amazon feared for a long time that Walmart never did in a real way was using their stores as pickup hubs and delivery hubs where they could actually maybe beat Amazon on convenience. And um and Walmart for a long time rejected it and, um, you know, didn't invest enough into making that a reality. And then the pandemic really, in addition to some entrepreneurs inside the company, but the pandemic- Can I pause here real quick? Because there's this yeah. great anecdote, um, once again, from the whole innovators dilemma uh, dynamic you give in the book where um, basketball hoops, right? Like you would, you could like, people were, because the, the e-commerce and like the in-person are like, kind of different branches of the company. So you'd get people ticked off when like this well-selling deal on basketball hoops that would normally be in-store were actually being ordered online. And it's, so it's just like a funny dynamic of how like I could say like who won Walmart or Amazon? What I really should be saying is which division of Walmart right, is doing right, good, right. which is actually being squeezed. Well, and that's part of my point is Walmart finally, the pandemic forced them to make some organizational changes that were super critical. And one of them was like, bringing together these two divisions that the CEO, Doug McMillan, who I met with for the book, he still says it was important for them to live separately for some period of time. So e-commerce team could really grow aggressively and do their own thing, but they came together in and are unified now. And it's not, per, you know, there are still cultural stuff and DNA that, you know, digital versus retail, but they're feeling pretty good. I think about their position right now. I think Amazon, under new CEO Andy Jassy, a couple years in, um, they've rolled back their physical retail in many ways, not Whole Foods, but their Amazon Fresh stores. They're still trying to figure that out because they really do think they need that presence for whether it's for pickup and delivery hubs or for that personal experience. I think they're confident because they're always confident, but I think they're less confident that um, that they they're going to have this breakaway sales growth um than they were a few years ago and you know they had a good quarter recently but i think their overall sales were 13 percent, which is at their size is crazy but these are not the 20 30 percent uh tech growth numbers that they were used to for a long period of time so actual last question which i doubt you've thought about so i don't expect a perfect answer um as someone who the show is mostly political yeah aside from topics like this I noticed a funny undercurrent throughout your book, which is all of these dudes specifically in e-commerce, in contrast to other parts of tech, 
yeah. are very politically ambitious. There's a character, I forget his name, who had originally planned on being a U.S. senator. Um, oh, Dave yeah. Clark, obviously, um, is planning on a almost certain to be disastrous run for governor of, of <laughs> Texas. Texas. Yeah. Um, you know, you had the, you know, CEO of, uh, wow, man, how am I forget? How, how, why am I blanking on this? Um, uh, Ryan, Ryan from the supply chain startup. Oh, um, uh, 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 flex, flex. Yeah, right. Yeah, Flexport CEO is like riding out into the Los Angeles Bay to sort of unsnare the supply chain crunches. Like, and then you know this because you cover the tech space. These guys are very politically oriented in a way that is just not true in the software oriented spaces. I'm curious if you think there's something about either the type of person who's drawn to the challenge. And, and quick thing with the president, the CEO of Walmart, everyone's saying, oh, we, we hope we won for president someday. Yeah, yeah, you have the anecdote. Yeah. I'm just, no, there's just something I'm noticing here. I'm curious like what you think of, because once again, this is not true in any other category of tech that I've encountered. No one's like, oh yeah, like, you know, the guys at, uh, I can't even think of an example because there just there just isn't one. Yeah, and I, I mean, there's even a. I'm thinking of a couple other folks who um, didn't actually uh, who thought hard about campaigns for uh, New York City mayor. One of them's the founder of Bonobos, Andy Dunn, and then actually, yeah. I don't, I don't, I know this. I don't know if it's ever been public. It doesn't really matter at this point. But one of the Bono, one of the uh, Warby Parker uh founders also was thinking about um i'm pretty sure it was a new york city mayor run at some point some point too uh, i'm not laughing at him i'm just laughing because i haven't really thought about um what you pointed out and but it's uh, there right there's a there's a very specific kind of uh commerce and supply chain because is, is it that like it's it's just it's like such a structural space where you just inherently have to think about like for example well, like, I would, the reason why dave clark's could be a terrible candidate for for governor in either party would be just the fact that he's you know kind of slave driving like warehouse workers uh um, I mean, in a way that means you have to think which is different than sort of like he, oh we're coding or doing this this or that you don't think there's a certain part of the population that would love that his nickname was the sniper um <laughs> early in his early in his amazon career um yeah i think you know in retail in general Part of it could just be like these executives are out there actually meeting with everyday people um, who work for, you know, hundreds of thousands of people who work for them. They they more day to day interactions with with what's working and not for for, you know, large swaths of America than um, than, you know, the tech executive that's, you know, in their you know, working on their software. I don't know. That's like, that's, that's, I'm painted with a super broad brush there, but there, there might be something, there might be something to that. Um, yeah, that's the best, that's the best I got for you. But now, now it, now it sounds like an idea for a further exploration. So I'll, I'll let you take a fir first crack at it. But um, as I, as I talk to publications about my next uh, business journalism, tech journalism job, uh, Sounds like a good story idea for me too. Well, one final thing that I'll raise you on, it's even more narratively centered. Mark Laurie, who spent a lot of time focused on the book, obviously founder yeah. of Jet, um, acquired by Walmart. Um, I interviewed him back in 2021 because his next project was like building a city in Nevada. So like there is just, and yeah. people could list, I'll, I'll link that interview in the show notes. Yeah. I'm not exactly bullish on the city effort, but there's just something where I'm just noticing this theme. So I think that's a good place for exploration. Uh, Jason, this has been really great. Can you um, shout the book out uh, for listeners? 
Sure. So the the book is Winner Sells All, Amazon, Walmart, and the Battle for Our Wallets. You can buy it on Amazon, on Walmart. A lot of indie indie sellers have it. Um, and I want to shout the great audio book. Uh, I am not the voice on it, thankfully, but um, I was really happy with um with with the guy who who um who read the book and um it's the audit the audible version and and the the audio version in general has been has been a really great seller um so i'll shout that out as well yeah that's where i uh listened it went really quick over two days jason thanks for joining me on the show thanks so much